he leaves off, he says, but God raised him from the dead, obviously meaning Jesus. He was seen for many days by those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses to the people. And we declare to you glad tidings, that promise which was made to the fathers. God has fulfilled this for us, their children, and that he has raised up Jesus as it is also written in the second psalm. Quote, you are my son, today I have begotten you, end quote. And that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption or decay. He has spoken thus, quote, I will give you the sure mercies of David, end quote. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, quote, you will not allow your holy one to see corruption, end quote. For David, for David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell asleep, was buried with his fathers, and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up saw no corruption. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through, through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. And by him, everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. So in context, Paul is leading them from Israel's history to the promise of the Messiah and his subsequent resurrection. In verse 31, we see that many people saw him after he rose from the dead. Some people think, well, Jesus was crucified, he died, and he went up to heaven, and that was it. But what, what we forget is that in between his resurrection and ascension, he was on the earth for 40 days, like the seal of authenticity, showing people, look, I'm alive, handle me, touch me, speak with me. So he had a 40-day ministry on earth prior to the ascension. And in addition to his disciples seeing the risen Christ, 1 Corinthians 15.6, Paul says that, 500 at once saw the risen Christ. So we know at the very least, 500 people saw Jesus risen from the dead. And in verse 32, Paul says, we declare to you glad tidings. The Greek root is the same word for gospel or the good news of salvation. This was something that God had promised his people way back in the Old Testament. As Paul said, this promise was made to the fathers. And in verse 33, Paul quotes Psalm 2-7. Now, in the study Bible, uh, you see the, what Paul quotes from the Old Testament is kind of separate, and it stands out, it's amplified. So that's why I went with the quotes there, because he keeps referencing back to the Old Testament to prove his point. He quotes Psalm 2-7 and speaks about the Son of God. When I did the devotions for the children's ministry just before, Somebody asked me, a friend of mine's an atheist, and they asked me, uh, I don't understand, did God have a beginning? When was his beginning? A lot of these concepts about the, the mysteriousness of God and his true, how, how magnificent, magnificent he is, are hard to explain to people. And my first response was, it's not something you can talk to that person from cubicle to cubicle. Try to set up a time where you could at least have a half an hour or so, because that question will lead to other questions. But these concepts of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, the Son of God, did God have a beginning? These are an enigma. They're a puzzle to many people, and rightly so, because God is big. And if we could just explain away God with one pen stroke, then God would be a small God. So there's going to be mysteries about him that we won't even understand until we're in his presence. But the Son of God concept has Old Testament precedence. If you're taking notes, in the Old Testament, the Son of God is mentioned in Proverbs 30, verse 4, Isaiah 9, 6, 
Daniel 3.25, in addition to Psalm 2.7. They all speak of the Son. So it's not just a New Testament concept. Some would argue, aren't we all sons of God? But if you look at these in context, each of these scriptures will point to a specific person that's spoken about. In Psalm 2.7, we also see the word begotten. Now, that word means either birthed or sired. Obviously, God the Father didn't physically birth or sire his son as humans do. Um, He's got his spirit, the Bible tells us. Although, if you look at true Mormon theology, okay, now with the one presidential candidate as a Mormon, a lot of people are saying, well, what's this Mormonism all about? They have some bizarre nuances to their faith, and one of them is that the father actually uh, had a physical relationship with Mary and sired the son, which is very bizarre and certainly not scriptural. So how do I get myself out of this one? Well, the answer is the word begotten also means to bring forth or deliver. As God himself interjected his only son into human history at precisely the right time. Remember, the son existed before Mary was ever born. Now, what's interesting to note here is there's a little twist here. If you look fast, you won't catch it. Paul is speaking about the resurrection when he uses Psalm 2-7. Now, God delivered his Savior at the appointed time from the tomb. Some scholars believe that the tomb was a type of womb, and uh, when he was risen from the dead, you know, that's what this psalm applies to. So he was uh, brought forth at the appointed three days' time. Other respected scholars believe that this psalm strictly applies to the incarnation. And others believe that this psalm quoted by Paul applies to his baptism and the commission where God's voice said, this is my son whom I'm pleased with. Uh, So different scholars have different views upon this particular portion of scripture. I believe that this scripture is multifarious, if you will, sort of like Daniel 9.27. And what I mean by that is there's some scriptures Daniel 9.27, that speak about the abomination of desolation that comes into the temple, the holy place. You know, um, if you look at history, in 166 B.C., Antiochus Epiphany uh, came into the temple. He destroyed it, and, and he profaned the temple, and he was in the Holy of Holies. Now, that gave rise to the whole Hanukkah celebration, okay, if you study your history. Uh, the other time that that actually happened in Daniel 9.27 was Romans 70. I'm sorry, um, in 70 AD by the Romans under uh, Titus Vespasian, where they, again, they destroyed the temple and they profaned it. They were walking in the Holy of Holies and um, it was a a profane uh, exhibition of uh, God's holy place. But Daniel 9.27 really points to the Antichrist who's going to come and the last and fulfillment of that scripture where the antichrist comes again the temple will be rebuilt it's not there now but it will be rebuilt and he will also come again into the holy of holies into the temple and present himself to be god so you see many times that that scripture has been fulfilled now going back to psalm 2 7 if you look in hebrews chapter 1 uh, the author of hebrews is also quoting psalm 2 7 and he's using that particular scripture to reference that Jesus Christ was higher than the angels. He was not an angel. Uh, Jehovah Witness doctrine believes that after Jesus died, he became the angel, uh, the archangel Michael, and appeared to many. But the scripture is very clear. A good dose of Hebrews will take that thought out of your head. 
there's no comparison between Jesus and the angels. He created the angels. Verse 34. In this particular scripture, Paul's quoting uh, Isaiah 55.3, where God speaks through Isaiah the prophet some, oh, 700 and change years prior to Paul actually speaking here. In context, God's promise of Israel's everlasting covenant was through King David regarding the eternal uh, throne and kingdom. And if you're taking notes, if you look up Second uh, Samuel 7, verses 12 through 17, that will reinforce that. This, is, this part of Scripture is a little heavy because Paul is speaking to these people who knew the Old Testament well, and not all of us do. So I have to go back and just kind of dig some of this up to give you a little background, okay? The problem with this whole eternal throne kingdom issue about the Messiah was that David died, King David died, and eventually the direct monarchical succession was cut off after the Babylonian takeover. You had your kings of Israel and you had your kings of Judah. And in Israel, 722 B.C., the the history tells us that the Assyrians came and cut off that uh, monarchy in the northern kingdom. Then the only kingdom that was left was Judah. And in 586 B.C., the Babylonians came and, you know, uh, broke through the walls of Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, and cut off that monarchy. So we have a problem with the scripture in that the Messiah was supposed to be from the uh, monarchical line of David. But you see, both of these kingdoms were cut off. The only way for this prophecy to be fulfilled was for King's heir, King David's heir, to sit on the throne uninterrupted and forever. And what we find is the only way for this to take place is through King Messiah, Jesus' resurrection and ascension onto the eternal throne in the heavenlies ordained by God. Sit, sit here at the right hand of the Father. That's what Jesus was supposed to do. So what you see is a promise in the scripture and then a deliverance of that scripture through Jesus Christ. Verse 35 through 37. Here another psalm is quoted by the Apostle Paul. He's quoting Psalm 16. And what he says is that you will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. You, God, will not allow your Holy One or your Anointed One, your Messiah, to see corruption or the decay that everybody goes through when they die. This is a bodily decomposition after death that everyone goes through. And it's as a result of sin in the world. It's a result of our federal head parents, Adam and Eve, relinquishing uh, the rights that God gave them to this, to this creation back to Satan because they disobeyed God, they rebelled against God. And you can see the ramifications of sin. People die now. At the time Paul was speaking, though, King David had already died and he was in the tomb, probably there in Jerusalem for all to see. So obviously this scripture is not um, uh, applying to King David. And Peter also used this Psalm 16 at Pentecost. It was a strong psalm often quoted to foretell the necessity of the, rese- the resurrection of the Messiah. And we have false messianic sects today. You see, uh, Jesus told us uh, many times in Scripture that there would be false messiahs, that many would rise up and claim, I am the Christ. Look here, look there, the Christ is risen. And Jesus says, don't follow them. It, it's, it's a sham. It's a lie. It'll be obvious to God's people when Jesus does return. But false messianic sects are all over the place. Now, if you have a person that you're dealing with and they say, well, we follow this person and we believe he's the Messiah, a few problems. Number one, can they prove the lineage of David? Probably not. Normally, the lineage of David was proven in scrolls that were kept in the temple. And uh, 
they can't prove that lineage. Furthermore, Israel is no longer a monarchy for a king to rule. So that kind of kills that point about reigning over, uh, you know, in a monarchy. You would ask them, are you a king? Is your Messiah a king? And the third thing is, as these false messiahs live and die and decay in the ground, it also proves they're not the Messiah, according to Psalm 16, because the Holy One was not allowed to see decay or the rotting process. I'll just give you a quick example. In the town that I work in, a few years back, a famous rabbi from New York had died, and they chose to bury him in the cemetery in the town that I work in. And... Uh, we had thousands of people coming in from New York, and you know we had parking problems. We had dozens of police out there trying to keep order. But these people believed that this rabbi was the Messiah. And when they dug the hole to put him in, in the coffin, people were jumping into the hole and hugging the coffin, and it was, it was a nightmare. It was a mess. Uh, but the point is, it was sad. They were wailing and weeping and jumping in the grave after this guy. But don't they read the scripture? The Bible says your Holy One, your Messiah, would not see decay. Now, Paul puts these people that he's speaking to in a position of taking away their ignorance of salvation. And I remember I had um, used Paul's uh, model uh, some weeks back with a young man I was witnessing to, and I used that historical retrospect. I went from the Old Testament, carried him through all the way to the New Testament, and then basically said to him, now you have a decision to make. You're not ignorant anymore. Okay? And then my question is, what do you think about the resurrection? Oh, yeah, the resurrection, the resurrection. You kind of hit on that heavy when it comes to Easter, right? That thing. Well, sadly, the resurrection today is taking a lot of hits. It's become expendable, even among Christendom. So-called pastors and men of God are putting it on the chopping block for the sake of political correctness, for the sake of ecumenism, for the sake of not offending people. Well, because Muhammad died. The Muslims don't dispute that. Buddha died. I remember one time I did a service and I said this was the anniversary that they celebrate Buddha's death. Uh, all these Joseph Smith died. Uh, Charles Taze Russell died. All these great leaders of these, of these big religions, they all died. And their followers don't dispute that. But Jesus' tomb has been empty for 2,000 years. It's empty. He's not there. And that's, a, that's offensive to some people. You know, we can't help it. Jesus did rise from the dead. And that's why we worship him as king, Right? As a police officer for 16 years, I've seen more people dead than I care to remember. Car accidents, um, suicides, what have you. And their state prior to funeral arrangements is often gruesome. And the act of rising from the dead and beating the decaying process that I've seen very often is not only amazing, but we should be rejoicing in the ramifications it has for us for eternal life. Thank God he beat the decaying process. Thank God God did not let his Holy One see corruption because we reap the benefits of that. Too many witnesses saw the resurrection for it to be a sham. Christianity had too much of an impact on Roman society for it to be a sham. As a matter of fact, if you, any of you study historians, study Roman history, if you look up any of these uh, great Roman historians or even modern historians, you can't study all of Rome without that person, that secular historian, putting Christianity in there. It's just not possible. It had too much of an impact on Roman society, whether it's Josephus or Tacitus or any of these historians. As a matter of fact, Josh McDowell, I was reading about him, an, an educated man, college educated. He was an agnostic. He had it with the Christians. He set out to prove Christianity and the resurrection a hoax. And the more he studied and the more he looked into the ancient documents, 
he got converted. He became a Christian himself and wrote a book on apologetics, several books uh, for Christianity. Stan Telchin, Jewish man, his daughter goes to college. She comes back, Daddy, I'm a Christian. What? We're Jewish. You can't be a Christian. He does the same thing. He goes out on a quest to disprove Christianity and the resurrection. He becomes converted, becomes a Christian, does speaking engagements all over the world. I tell you what, I wish more people would say to me, I'm going to prove this wrong. I'm going to go check into it because we'd have a lot more Christians in the world now, wouldn't we? So my question is, what do you think about the resurrection? Because what you think about the resurrection has eternal consequences for your soul. Verse 38 and 39. Paul talks about the forgiveness of sins and he talks about justification. Now, the law of Moses never intended nor was declared by God to justify anyone. You can scour the Old Testament and you won't find anywhere in there where it says the law of Moses was for justification. It was simply to show as a mirror to us our failure when compared to God's perfect standard and shows our need for a savior. But Paul says that Jesus brought forgiveness of sins and he brought justification. Now, if I ask for a show of hands, do you know what forgiveness of sins means? Do you know what forgiveness means? Probably all of you would raise your hand. If I ask by a show of hands how many people know what justification is, probably a lot less hands would go up. Justification, according to the dictionary, is a declaration in a moment's time that a person is not guilty of their offense. In Christianity, for the believer... It's a pronouncement that you're free from guilt by the blood of Jesus, that he shed his blood on the cross cross for the remission of our sins. And it's something that affects the believer standing before the throne of God. When you're justified by God, you have a right standing before the throne. It's actually a positive action. And if you're taking notes, Romans 4, 5 and Romans 5, 9 speak about this. So it's a positive action towards you. Whereas the forgiveness of sins is more of a nullifying action. It's something that's removed from you. But the positive action is actually the justification, declaring you righteous. The righteousness of Christ is imputed to you as your sin was imputed to him at the cross. John Corson does a great, um, I think he came up with it, he calls it the great switcheroo. When Jesus died on the cross, he took our reputation as sinners because we are rebellious people. And all the sins that we've ever committed were imputed to him on the cross. He took those, those sins on him, okay? But his perfect reputation when we believe on Jesus was imputed to us. When God sees us, he doesn't see us as sinners anymore. He sees us as clean. He sees us as righteous because of the righteousness of Christ. Now, there's a lot of big words in the scripture, justification, propitiation, you know, sanctification. And I'm just going to go through some of those things um, from start to finish so you can see the uh, progression of those terms. Number one, to repent. I'm sorry for what I did, Lord. I know I'm a sinner. I want to turn from my wicked ways and go towards you. Repentance. Believe that Jesus is your Lord and Savior. Believe on him. Trust on him as your Lord and Savior. Then you have the forgiveness of sins. Now your, your sins have been forgiven by the blood of Christ. Okay, we're, going, we're doing this in order. Then you're justified. So you're, you're declared righteous by God. Now your reputation is in good standing before the throne of God. And then comes sanctification. Sanctification now is the process after all that has taken place. It's really neat where uh, sanctification means a separation. You start to become more separated from sin. You start to become more separated from the world and separated unto God. 
In the Old Testament, the priests were separated from uh, dead things, from sinful things, and they were set apart for God's service. So sanctification for the believer is just a process. Hopefully I'm more sanctified now than I was 10 years ago. And the further I go in my walk with Christ, the more I want to be like him, the more I want to be conformed into his image, you know, I'm set apart more and more, I'm sanctified. Okay, so that's like an ongoing process until we die. One more point on justification. You ever hear somebody say, well, you're just justifying your sin. (laughs) Even in its aberrant form, the form that's not a proper form, a person tries to justify their sinful behavior. In a twisted way, they try to declare what they're doing is right, even though it's not right. Well, I have a family to feed, so it's okay for me to stab my coworker in the back and you know, do all kinds of bad things or cheat the person I'm, that's, that's, uh, that hired me so that I can feed my family. You're justifying, you're, the, you're taking the point of God in that instance, you're justifying your own sin because it makes sense to you because I'm feeding my family, I have an altruistic goal. That's an aberrant form of justification. You're actually taking on God's role and you're deciding what's right and what's wrong. Okay, so knowing that you've been justified when you believe in Jesus Christ, knowing that whether you feel it or not, there's a sanctification process going on inside of you. The more that you are in Christ and the longer you're a believer, how does that make you feel? Should make you feel good. See a few smiles. Some people are nodding off. That's okay. Uh, But (laughs) anyway, the point that I'm trying to make is that What are you not forgiving yourself for if God has already forgiven you? Who are we to condemn ourselves? Isn't that weird how we condemn ourselves? Well, I've had an abortion. Well, I've had more than one abortion. Well, I killed a man. I met people who killed people, okay? Well, I I stole. Well, I ripped people off. Well, I uh, did something awful to this person and they died and I couldn't say I'm sorry. We all carry around something. But see, God has forgiven us. God has made that clean. Why do we hold on to that? Why do we condemn ourselves? I, I hear people, when they, when they go through these machinations in their mind, they're like, well, God is punishing me. That's twisted theology. That's not true. God has forgiven you. If you're truly in Christ and you're truly repentant, those sins are washed away. God doesn't see them anymore, but you still see them. Let it go. Let it go. Romans 8 says that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. No condemnation. So if God feels that way, we should act in it. We should live in it. Verse 40. Beware, therefore, lest what has been spoken in the prophets come upon you. Quote, Behold, you despisers, marvel and perish, for I work a work in your days, a work which you will by no means believe, though one were to declare it to you. Here, Paul is quoting Habakkuk 1.5. Now, just to give you, again, a brief background, so you have the background. Some of you say, what's Habakkuk? I've never seen Habakkuk. He's one of the minor prophets just before Matthew. If you go to Matthew and you go to the left, a few books back, you got Habakkuk. But Habakkuk, Habakkuk was a prophet, and he was having a, a discourse with God, and he said to the Lord, you know, my people are so materialistic, they're so idolatrous, they're so self-centered, kind of sounds like today. Lord, how can you look upon this? You've you got to do something. And of course, I'm paraphrasing it. And the Lord says, ah, Habakkuk, I'm doing a work that if you were to be told this, you wouldn't believe it. I'm rising up to wicked Babylonians to come and destroy my people, and uh, I'm going to have him purge them, you know. I'm going to have them take over 
And this is going to be the judgment that's pronounced on them. Wow, Habakkuk was actually taken back about that. You see, God is in the business of doing things that are unbelievable. When we try to limit God, we get into problems, and it affects our theology. When you think about God, you have to think limitless when you think about a work that he's doing because he is big. And you see this concept, too, in Isaiah 29:14. In the time of Habakkuk, God used Gentiles wholesale to punish the Jews. Now, in that day, that was unbelievable. How could this be happening? Even Habakkuk protested it, and he was a, a prophet of God. In the time of Acts, God used the Jews to save the Gentiles. Through the Jews, the Messiah came and the Gentiles would be saved. That was equally unbelievable in their time. Even more unbelievable was God's ability to use the Messiah to suffer and to be cursed on a tree for our transgressions. And we covered that uh, last Sunday. But the question is, or the point is, I think that's pretty amazing that God did that. I mean, that was a big thing that God did. And most of the people had no idea what he was doing. But where would we be if the Messiah came as we wanted him to be? And I say we, 2,000 years ago, the Jewish people wanted this conquering military political hero. But I think that if we were in the crowd, we probably would have been, yeah, we're tired of the Romans. You know, people are the same. 1,000 years ago, 2,000 years ago, we're all the same. But what if the Messiah came and he wanted to fill everybody's whims and desires? And he came, okay, I'll come as that conquering military hero. Where would we be when we died? We'd be in hell. Because we needed the Messiah to die for our sins. That had to be. What unbelievable thing is God doing in your life? When you read the book of Habakkuk, when you read the scripture, when you read what Paul is talking about, when you look at your life, what unbelievable things are God doing in, is God doing in your life? You know, what unimaginable things? What, what have you been praying for? What are the ways that you think God's going to answer your prayers? Again, think limitless. Five years ago, if somebody told me I was going to be up here and I was going to be the senior pastor of this church, I would say that's ridiculous. <laughs> Unbelievable. No way I'm not doing it. I'm here. So, you know, it just goes to show you. In verse 41, there's a warning here that, that Paul puts in. Okay? And again, he's quoting from Habakkuk. Behold you despisers, marvel and perish. You see, it's almost like the cartoons, you know, when, when Bugs Bunny or whatever, and they... You know, there's something that's, that's bad for you, and it has a little bottle, and it has a skull and crossbones. You know, don't take it. It's poison. And, of course, they, they eat it, and they get sick, but they always come back. But that's the cartoons. But the point is, you don't want to be on the rejecting side of what God is doing. God does marvelous things. God does big things. God does things that are limitless. Behold, you despisers, you naysayers. No, that can't happen. And a lot of this that he was speaking to was God's own people. He wasn't speaking to the pagans. He was talking to God's people. What are you doing? How can you despise this? How can you have such unbelief? You know, we can't even begin to please God, Hebrews tells us, unless we have a belief that he is, he exists, and he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So beware, you despisers. Verse 42, and when the Jews went out of the synagogue, the Gentiles begged that these words might be preached to them on the next Sabbath. The Gentiles begged that these words be preached. Wow. A desire and a hunger for God's word. If you remember, Cornelius and his family begged Peter not to leave. They, he spent so much time with them explaining the mysteries of God. And they said, please stay with us longer. Don't leave. We want to hear more. Many missionaries to China and India, I love talking to missionaries uh, and repressed nations, I've often heard 
the common phrase of, from different parts of the world when they, when they go to preach the gospel, why didn't you come sooner? Why couldn't you come while my parents were still alive? Many missionaries hear that. I've been waiting this, for this message all my life. What is our attitude towards hearing the unadulterated word of God? Is it, hurry up, Pastor Joe, I've got things to do today. Don't belabor the point. 35 minutes, you know, you only got five minutes left, and then I'm going to start falling asleep on you. Or me, what's my attitude? Oh, bummer, I've got to go back and hit the books. These people want to hear something on Sunday. Oh, I'll trudge through the Bible. No, it's not my attitude, but hopefully we don't have that attitude. Hopefully we hunger. A Wednesday night Bible study, you know, Saturday morning fellowship, a, 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 a Tuesday a women's Bible study teaching, a Sunday morning teaching of the Bible, to get it as much as we can. And I love to listen to my elders teach on Wednesday when they teach because I get refreshed from hearing somebody different. And, you know, Vinnie Whitehead covered um, Jonah, and I remember covering Jonah eight months before that, and I'm like, gee, I didn't see that. That was good. He found something that I didn't see. So it's pretty, it's pretty awesome. Or tell me more. I've been waiting for the conclusion of Acts all week. What? Only 30 minutes? I feel cheated. <laughs> right? We have the crown jewels right here, right here in this book. So what is our attitude? Hopefully, like the Gentiles in this particular portion of Scripture, we beg for the Word of God. We have a hunger for that. There's times that I'm out and people will ask me Bible questions and they'll say, I hope you don't mind, this is a social setting. No, I love to answer the Bible. And if I don't have the answer, I'll find the answer for you. So always have that hunger for the Word of God. Verse 43. Now when the congregation had broken up, many of the Jews and devout proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who speaking to them persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. Paul and Barnabas won a bunch of people over and they had a following. What did they instruct them next? And this is key. Man of God, woman of God, what do you do? Do you bask in that following or do you just continue to lead people towards God? Because it can affect your flesh. Wow, you know, someone's paying attention to me. They revere me as a teacher. So what? We're expendable as teachers. I, I, I talked about that in the uh, devotions in the children's ministry. Me, you, all of us. God can use anybody. And when we start to get funky and we start to really think about that it's us, then God will remove us. He'll, he'll take us out and put somebody else in our place. And that's the mindset that we always have to have. But what, what was their response to this following? Well, I'll tell you what they didn't say. They didn't say, well, now you owe us big time. <laughs> we were instrumental in saving your souls. You owe us. They didn't say, support the Paul and Barnabas new Corvette fund. They didn't say that either. And they didn't say, hey, let's start a new religion with us as the religious leaders. They didn't say that either. The message was very clear. Continue in the grace of God. They were persuaded to continue in the grace of God. It was a, a subtle command. Now, there's many messages that bombard us in the information age. You can't get up out of bed without seeing on TV or your computer or outside or a billboard some type of message, right? But some are eternal and some are worthless. Continue in the grace of God. This is not something that we should quit or walk away from over time. We quit a lot of things, don't we? We, we start a lot of things, and then, you know, it's a new fad, and we don't follow through. Could be eating right. We always try to eat right. I think I should eat right and take care of myself. That goes out the window. Gym membership. Gyms do very well, especially in uh, December and January, because everybody wants to make their New Year's resolution and, and you know, work out and, and look good and work off those holiday cookies and all that kind of stuff, right? And then gyms do wonderful, because after March or April, 
it, it tails off. And then they get to keep all that money because they make you sign a contract. But, you know, all these things, we, we start and we don't finish. I have a, an uncanny uh, habit of whether I'm doing molding in my house or uh, something, some type of project, for some reason I do it like 98% and I never finish. There's one piece of molding in my downstairs that there's just one piece I have to cut. And it's been like that for the last two years. I just haven't finished it. It's, isn't it ridiculous? <laughs> but this is what we do as human beings. However, salvation is a precious gift, and it's not to be cheapened. And Paul's command was appropriate. Continue in the grace of God. This isn't something to dawdle about. This is precious. This is the pearl of great price. Start it and finish it. Verse 44. And the next Sabbath, almost the whole city came together to hear the word of God. Almost the whole city came together to hear the word of God. That's what we should be praying for in our area. Unfortunately, in Western society, we don't need God as a society. We have everything we need in this technological and biologically savvy society at our fingertips. If I have an ailment or a tumor, yeah, I could pray about it, but I'm going to go to the surgeon. He'll take care of it like that. If I have a cold or if I'm cold, I go to that electronic thermostat and, and just use a, 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 a thousandth of an erg with my finger, and boom, I turn on the heat. If, and you name it, if I'm hungry, I take the food out of that, that technological freezer or, or refrigerator and put it in that technological microwave and hit the start button. That's what we do. As a society, we've, we've grown and learned not to need God. When September 11th happened, I remember... Uh, many, many flocked into churches and sought after God. I remember when I uh, was on staff at Calvary Chapel Oldbridge, and we, we had all the fold-up chairs and we put them out in the lobby. I mean, dozens of them. And still, it was standing room only. After a few months or a year, people left the churches and went back to business as usual. It's a shame. Almost the whole city came to hear the word of God. My prayer often is for revival. I pray that revival would start in our hearts and it would... Uh, bleed through to our, our families, our neighborhoods, all country, our country, and ultimately the world. So pray for revival. Verse 45. But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy, and contradicting and blaspheming, they opposed the things spoken by Paul. Then Paul and Barnabas grew bold and said, It was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first, but since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, quote, I have set you to be a light to the Gentiles that you should be for salvation to the ends of the earth, end quote. Now when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was being spread throughout all the region. But the Jews stirred up the devout and prominent women and the chief men of the city, raised up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and expelled them from their region. So you see Paul and Barnabas, you see their expulsion from the city. In verse 45 through 47, Paul is quoting Isaiah 42, 6 and Isaiah 49, 6. One thing that's, that's curious about this, if people read the Bible wrong, and many have over the centuries, they think that, you know, well, the Jews rejected Jesus and, uh, you know, now we should persecute them. And that's what they, they, the conclusion that they come to. Well, that's obviously wrong. The Bible never advocates persecution against the Jews for rejecting Jesus. It's never biblical. 
But what is biblical, as Paul says, is to make the Jews jealous for their Messiah. Now that's fair game, and that I like. I love to witness to Jewish people who are open because I just used the Old Testament. And, and usually their response is, oh, I never saw that. Oh, I was never taught that. And I'm like, this is your Messiah. You know, because of your Messiah, I have eternal life. Make them jealous for their Messiah. That's the right way to handle it. Persecution is always wrong for the Jews, always wrong. In verse 48, he says, you have been appointed or enrolled. The Bible speaks of the Lamb's book of life and the names written in it. Now, you've heard of Santa's list, and he's got this list, and he's going to find out who's naughty and nice and, you know, get cold or a good gift. But put that aside, and the Lamb's book of life. That's the place that we all want to be written in. We want our names to be in that book. And my question to you is, is your name written in that book? I know mine is, because I've repented, and I've trusted Jesus as my Lord and Savior. I have no doubt. I don't have to peek. He doesn't have to give me a glimpse. I know my name is written in that book. It's not an arrogance, but it's an assurance, and everyone can have that assurance. So my question is, is your name written in it? Do you know if your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life? And if not, why not? Do you want it to be? It's easy. Repent and believe. I was having a conversation with a brother yesterday, <laughs> and he said, Joe, you make it sound so easy, repentance. And it was a good, it was a good discussion because it's true. Yeah, you just change direction. Oh, I'm, I'm fine, Lord, you know. But it's true. He's right. I make it sound so easy. What's hard about it is our pride. See, when you have to repent and you have to say, I'm sorry, when you have to say, I was wrong, uh, okay, it's maybe a little bit easier to do it to God, but it's certainly hard to do it with people because there's an ego issue there. You have to admit that you were flawed in a, in a certain dis decision. So pride gets involved. Hurt feelings gets involved. The question is, did, will people look at me and think that I made poor judgments? So repentance, yes. It takes a lot of humility to repent, but it is simple in that I know this is the right thing to do. Lord, I've lived my life for myself. That's obvious, and it hasn't gotten me anywhere. And I'm reading your word, and it's, it's regenerative, and, and I know that your word has power. So, Lord, I don't know how to do it, but I want to do it, Lord. Be, be with me. I don't know how to pray, but, you know, I want to start right now. Forgive me for my sins, Lord. I want to turn and, and go in the other direction, in your direction. And I believe that Jesus is my Lord and Savior. That's the step. Yes, it may take some humility, but it is that simple. Verse 50. You see now, after this, um, you've got to expect persecution to rear its ugly head prior to and after making inroads with the message of eternal life. Sometimes we wonder, man, this, this happened to me, this awful thing and this, this tragedy and, and what's going on here? Well, maybe the next day you'll, you'll have an opportunity to preach to a coworker or to, uh, to do a teaching, right? And certainly afterwards something happens to you. And again, we talked about that, those spiritual issues that happen. The way demonic forces manipulate people, and you see it here. Some people are just manipulated by demonic forces. God is doing a work, and people are manipulated to come against you when you're doing a work for God. Instead of just saying, these people could have just said, well, we don't like that message. It's a stupid message. We like the synagogue the way it is. We like the city the way it is. You know what? We're not listening to your message. We don't, we don't buy it. But not only did they not want to hear the message, but they had to go aggressively and attack Paul and Barnabas. They wanted Paul and Barnabas destroyed. And you see that today. There was a, um, you know, every time around this, this time of the year, uh, some town should put up a Christmas tree and, and the Star of David, and 
the ACLU probably have their best time of the year during the holidays because they're suing everybody. Take down the Christmas tree. Take down this, you know, the whole deal. But there was a, um, uh, a town that the atheists got together and said, we won't get the ACL to sue you if next to your Christmas tree we could put our tree, same tree, <laughs> a tree of knowledge and put the things that we want on our tree. And, of course, the town went with it and there was no lawsuit. But if I'm an atheist and I really don't believe in God, I'm going to look at that tree and go, these people are pathetic. What a bunch of fools. I'm not going to waste my time trying to compete with them and put up another tree or sue them. I just say they're just foolish people, Christians, right? But there's a spiritual element to it. You know, they have to come against us because they're being manipulated by demonic forces, whether they realize it or not. Verse 51. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and came to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. They shook off the dust from their feet. Now, this was a custom, and it's good. When you learn the customs of that day, the Bible really comes alive to you. To shake off the dust of your feet was a sign of scorn and dissociation. And Jesus told his disciples to do the same thing in Matthew 10:14. You go into a, a city, a village, and you go to preach the word, and you know, you're walking around, and dirt gets in your sandals, and they reject God's message. When you leave the city, take your sandals off and just click off even the dirt. Leave their, even their dirt there and move on to the next village who will be receptive. Now, even today, you can see similar customs in the Middle East. If you remember when the Americans came in, I believe it was Baghdad, uh, one of the bigger cities, and they pulled down that statue of Saddam Hussein, a lot of the villagers came out, took off their shoes, and it was bizarre. Two Americans, we looked at it and go, what, what the heck are they doing? They took off their shoes and they were hitting the statue. But the bottom of their shoes is a sign of, of um, offensiveness. And they were trying to show that they hated Saddam Hussein and they were hitting the statue. Um, and again, there's, there's many other instances. But Paul and, their, and his crew were expelled and they moved to Iconium, which was east of Antioch. They were moving on and starting somewhere new. Now, we may move on with a new location, but our mission as Christians never changes. No matter where we go, if our job is relocated and we have to go to live in Europe or, or we decide to become a missionary somewhere in Mexico or whatever it is, it's a new location, but our mission is always the same as Christians. We are to be walking billboards for God and his plan of salvation, and that's something that the world loathes. It bothers the world that we share our faith. Again, it's a spiritual issue. And the disciples were filled with joy in the Holy Spirit, uh, the Bible says. And the question is why? Well, let's look at two views from two vantage points about Paul and Barnabas and, and his followers and what had happened to them. The first view is the world's perspective. If you're looking through this from secular glasses, you know, you put your secular spectacles on and look at the story. Paul and Barnabas were losers. This was a failed ministry. <laughs> well, what did they get? They stirred up a controversy. They got kicked out of the city. It's a bust. Game over. You know, that's what a failed story. Now, if you take those spectacles off and you look, on your, look at your spiritual, that's a tongue twister, your spiritual spectacles from that perspective and look at the story, God's perspective, it accomplished his will. I want to read two verses for you, Isaiah 55, 10 through 11. One of my favorite verses. It, it compares the precipitation cycles with how God's, uh, word and, and how his, his, uh, his, his will gets, you know, happens and the uh, fruit from it. Verse 10, 
It says, For as the rain comes down and the snow from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth and make it bring forth in bud, that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. So you see this, this cycle of you know, giving the word of God, doing God's will. And are we always going to see the fruit here? No. I can't remember where it was, but there was uh, missionaries who went to... I don't even remember. The, the, I should have done a little homework on that. But they went somewhere, and they ministered to these uh, tribal people, and they didn't get any converts. And they actually got kicked out of the city, and they starved to death, and they died. And uh, years later, they were found, you know, they were found. Their articles and their busted-up boat and everything. But because of that, it, it somehow it got other people to come over there, and there was converts made, and people were won over for Jesus Christ. But in, in the articles, I'm, I'm amazed because I would have been so depressed. I would have wrote, oh, it's a failure. This is terrible. But these guys wrote in their journal how, you know, the Lord was working and they, they sensed the Spirit and, and all this kind of stuff. And uh, that was pretty amazing. But they broke the ground. And you could look at their life and say, well, you know, their life was over. What happened? What was the good? But the ramifications of that was those people got saved later on down the road. So the success is because of obedience, not because of 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 production. If we if God owned the factory and we were workers in his factory, most employers say I want the bottom line. I want production. I want 100 widgets a day. Anything under 100 widgets and I'm firing you. The interesting thing about God is if he was a factory owner and we worked in his factory, God would say I want to see your effort. I want to see your obedience and I don't care how many widgets you make. Isn't that bizarre? God does things so differently than man does things. You see, God wants to see our obedience. He wants to see our heart. He wants to see our effort. He doesn't care how many widgets we make, and that's important. So it's, it's all about obedience. And again, it comes down to two views. The question is, who do we want to please? Do we want to please the world? Do we want to please our own flesh? Or do we want to please the Lord? Let's pray. Obedience is...